This is On Target, a look at politics, crime, education, what's happening in Newfoundland and Labrador with the people who know. The views and opinions expressed on this program are not necessarily those of this station. And now your On Target host, Linda Swain. And good afternoon, everyone. Well, we're watching very closely, of course, the very concerning news out of Buckingham Palace. Uh, A very brief advisory was issued by the palace today. It simply reads, following further evaluation this morning, the Queen's doctors are concerned for Her Majesty's health and have recommended that she remain under medical supervision. The Queen remains comfortable and at Balmoral. So uh, she had to cancel uh, a meeting with the Privy Council yesterday uh, under doctor's orders to rest Uh, and the news is very concerning. The family has been called in. Um, uh, Queen Elizabeth II, of course, a 96-year-old monarch whose reign has lasted 70 years, her platinum jubilee, of course, this year and uh, most people listening here today don't remember a time when she wasn't Queen of Canada and uh, her reign dating back to 19. 52. So it's just extraordinary, uh, uh, very historic uh, and significant global figure. And uh, of course, we're watching that situation very closely and with great concern. Well, this is FASD Awareness Month and FASDNL has launched a prevention and awareness social media campaign right across Atlantic Canada. It's one of a number of events planned throughout the month to shine a light on fetal alcohol spectrum disorder. Well, my guest today on On Target is the executive director of FASDNL, Catherine Dunbar-Windsor. Hello. Hi there. Thanks for having me. Well, thanks for joining us on the show. So I guess we'll start out with, you know, what is FASD or fetal alcohol spectrum disorder? Sure. Yeah, it's um, a lifelong disability and it's caused when a fetus is exposed to alcohol in the womb during a pregnancy. And um, FASD is is just that. It's a spectrum disorder. And so individuals with FASD have a variety of different strengths and challenges and different needs for supports across their lives. So what kind of impacts can it have on a person's life? Yeah, well, FASD, we now understand, is um, something that impacts both the brain and the body. And so FASD can have impacts for learning, um, our social worlds, behaviors, uh, our physical bodies, and our emotional um, sort of management and well-being as well. How is it typically diagnosed? FASD is normally diagnosed or it's recommended to be diagnosed by a multidisciplinary team that includes a doctor, a physician, sometimes it's a pediatrician, uh, a speech language pathologist, an occupational therapist, a psychologist, and often there's a case manager or social worker involved in the team as well. And each team member does their own very important part of an assessment and then they kind of come together to look at the assessment results and determine whether or not FASD is sort of part of the picture for that person or not. Right, because I would imagine that uh, uh, some of the um, manifestations, I suppose, of fetal alcohol spectrum disorder might look like a a variety of things. Yeah, absolutely. So there can be um, 
overlapping diagnoses. For example, people may also have a diagnosis of ADHD or autism spectrum disorder. Um, but there can also be a misdiagnosis. Perhaps one or both of those diagnoses was put in place with the, when there was a lack of uh, knowledge or awareness that FASD could also be uh, part of what's going on. Um, and so, yes, there are some overlapping sort of traits. Um, and and so the multidisciplinary team is, is quite helpful in, in being able to determine um, exactly what's going on for a person. So because it requires this multidisciplinary team and a variety of experts in, uh, in different fields, um, can it be missed in some people who just don't have those access to those types of uh, professionals? Yeah, absolutely. Um, but it can, it's also more than that. There can be a lot of sort of um, misunderstanding about how FASD occurs. For example, people may be under the impression, and I say people as in the general public, can be under the impression that, you know, somebody has to drink a, a significant amount of alcohol or a certain type of alcohol or at a certain time. Uh, within a pregnancy in order for FASD occur, to occur. And we know that that isn't the case, that there is no known safe amount of alcohol during pregnancy and that FASD can occur even when small amounts of alcohol are consumed. And so uh, oftentimes um, if somebody has consumed alcohol in their pregnancy, they may be reassured by their physician or their healthcare provider and say, oh, no, 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 that's nothing you need to worry about. And so it sort of becomes part of the, you know, into the background, if you will. And, um, and of course, for people who do know that they've consumed alcohol and, and maybe perhaps consider it a possibility that their child may have FASD, um, they also have a heightened awareness that there's a lot of shame and stigma around, um, you know, sharing with, with healthcare providers or other people that they may have consumed alcohol during pregnancy. And so it, it can further contribute to people remaining quiet about, about alcohol consumption. Right, because, I mean, your first thought, and I think this is a natural tendency of, of all of us, is to say, oh, my gosh, what have I done? It's This is my yeah. fault. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and we really encourage um, to re- to think in FA- about FASD and, and to think about alcohol use in more complex terms than that because um, because of the role that alcohol plays in our everyday lives and our society, um, you know, it's it's an incredibly it's socially acceptable. It's legal. It's regulated. It's readily available, and it's often a substance. And I would say it's probably one of the few substances where we often have to offer an explanation about why we are not consuming alcohol at a social gathering, for example, rather than why we are consuming it. And and so it's it's a very you know it's a it's so socially acceptable, uh, and yet there's this sort of um, flip side, which is that when alcohol is consumed during pregnancy, we can be very quick, too quick to judge and to assume um, different, you know, elements about that person's life. And so we really try to um, under- help people understand that FASD can occur in every society where there is alcohol. It can occur for women and people who are moderate, light, or heavy drinkers. Um, it can occur when people have consumed alcohol before they know they're pregnant, for example. And so that even if they find out around, you know, week five, six, that they're pregnant, and they don't ever consume alcohol again during their pregnancy, that their the fetus and, and their, their child could then still have FASD. 
Yeah, it's complex, isn't it? And and what you said then is is really uh, eye opening because I know I'm I'm not much of a drinker myself, and whenever I'm in a social environment, people often say, "Why aren't you drinking?" Uh, but I don't hear anybody say to anybody else, "Why are you drinking?" <laughs> you know what I mean? It's it's exactly. a it's a strange social I don't know <laughs> uh, construct that we all have. Absolutely. Yeah, we don't say to people, why aren't you smoking cigarettes today, you know, or why aren't you having cigarettes at our at our barbecue tonight? Um, and so we can really, when we think about alcohol in those terms or in that way, we can realize just how um, embedded it is in our social world and um, how much pressure there can be for people to consume alcohol or feel that they have to present some type of, you know, quote unquote, legitimate reason why they may not be drinking, which of course can be for a variety of reasons, which may or may not be because they are pregnant or not. So. And it's none of your business. <laughs> um, my guest today on On Target is the executive director of FASDNL, Catherine Dunbar-Windsor. We're talking about fetal alcohol spectrum disorder, and it's uh, FASD Awareness Month. So this is what it's all about. We'll, uh, we'll be back right after this. Join us for On Target, one hour in which Linda Swain examines topics that mean the most to you. On Target, weekday afternoon at one on your VOCM. And we're back. We have a bit of a traffic advisory to uh, send out to you now this afternoon. Uh, there is a tractor trailer on fire on the Trans-Canada Highway near uh, Mackinson's. That's by that overpass there. Traffic, we're told, is backed up in both directions. So expect some significant delays in that area if you happen to be traveling on the highway. A tractor trailer on fire on the Trans-Canada Highway near Mackinson's uh, by the overpass there. Traffic is backed up in both directions. Well, my guest today on On Target is the executive director of FASDNL, that's Fetal Alcohol Spectrum Disorder NL, Catherine Dunbar-Windsor, and this is FASD Awareness Month. Uh, Catherine, any estimate on how many people have been diagnosed with FASD in Newfoundland and Labrador? Yeah, we don't have estimates on um, diagnostic rates um, because, of course, that would be uh, very much within people's private medical um, Information, but we do have information on prevalence, which is the you know the estimate of how common uh, something is within a, a given population. And so, FASD is estimated to be about uh, to be present in about four percent of the general Canadian population, and that translates to over twenty thousand Newfoundlanders and Labradorians. Um, and so, we also know that those uh, prevalence estimates are higher for specific populations, namely uh, children in care and uh, justice populations as well. That's significantly high, 4%. Yes, it is. It's um, FASD at a 4% prevalence rate is two and a half times more common than autism spectrum disorder. It's 19 times more common than cerebral palsy and 28 times more common than Down syndrome. And so when I offer training to people uh, and they're first learning about FASD, one of the things I like to ask is, do you know anybody in your life? Have you ever met anyone with any number of those, you know, those conditions that I just named? And uh, I'll ask them to raise their hands. And, uh, and then I'll say, well, so if you know people with those conditions, then you know people with FASD. And you may not realize they have FASD. And in fact, they may not know they have FASD. But uh, based on 4% prevalence, we all know and love people with FASD. 
Are there, is there any kind of treatment or, or supports and resources that are needed by people with FASD? Yeah, and the treat the well, not treatment per se in the formal medical sense, but certainly there are strategies um, and supports that can be very, very helpful. Um, and they vary depending on the person uh, because of the spectrum nature of FASD. There isn't sort of one particular way that FASD can present in people. And so for some people, that can be a lot of support in day-to-day functions. For example, with executive functioning, the sort of organizational elements of their, of their lives, um, you know, scheduling, reminders, uh, structured activities, structured um, schedules, and so on. Other people, it might be a higher need for supervision. It could be repetition, uh, reteaching of concepts, and that can be both socially and in a formal classroom environment as well. And so really one of the biggest factors in supporting people who have FASD and their families is for the service providers and educators and caregivers that are involved in the person's life, uh, the life. So, for example, daycare workers, um, teachers, babysitters, family and friends, to be aware of FASD and to be aware of the fact that there will be a need to often reteach, uh, offer a little bit of extra supervision and guidance and structure and reminders. And when we can change the environment in that way, we very much Um, Well, we place the burden on us, right, to adapt versus the person with FASD, and we offer an environment that can be far more supportive and and recognizing uh, that people can learn and function very well um, with, with adaptations. Like a lot of things that we're learning about in uh, in recent years, um, I, I can't help but uh, think about the people who may not have that diagnosis or uh, who don't have people around them to recognize uh, some of these signs and have lived their lives and have always wondered, why, why can't I succeed when I'm trying these things? Why uh, do I keep running into these kinds of challenges? Um, I, I think about people like that. Uh, I, I mean, are there things that people can be mindful of or thinking about uh, in terms of trying to hone in on on um, the kind of help that they need? Yeah, I mean, what I always sort of say is if you treated everybody like they have FASD, then you can do no harm in the sense that using basic language and wording, being clear in the meaning of what you say, repeating um, your instructions, um, can be and being patient with people with different learning styles and paces and so on can be very very helpful um and so there are a fair number of strategies that can be um you know put in place even if a formal diagnosis is not yet made um the the trouble is that you know we don't necessarily live in a society where where we're completely we're systems and and so on are completely ready to adapt to the sort of functional need of people uh, and we do tend to hold some pretty rigid expectations of independence at certain ages of you know being able to expecting people to be able to do certain tasks by certain uh, chronological ages and so uh, those are challenges for sure uh, that people with FASD and their families will encounter um and so, yeah, I mean, it, it, you know, FASD being a brain-based disability means that it's relatively invisible, right? And so that also adds to the challenge because 
you know, you don't quote unquote look like you have a disability. And so people expect a lot of you. And when people are not able to sort of meet that expectation, um, there can be a lot of judgments formed as well around the person to say, well, okay, they're, they're not trying hard enough or they're being willfully disobedient or whatever the case might be. So Certainly we see that, you know, the earlier that strategies and supports are put in place, the earlier that people in the lives of a person with FASD can become educated and informed about FASD, that the, the better the person does. Uh, it's a spectrum, of course, uh, but I'm thinking in terms of, uh, you know, lifelong supports. Are, are they required, you know, throughout a person's life? Yeah, absolutely. So the nature of supports would very much change um, based on a person's age and life stage. But yeah, and there are no clear guidelines or sort of recommended guidelines on uh, offering support to adults. And it's a very challenging time, um, like these sort of emancipation concerns of people becoming, for example, when they turn 18, but they rely quite heavily on their parents and caregivers to offer them supports. And then all of a sudden, the parent or caregiver is no longer able to sort of communicate on behalf of the, the person uh, because they're now over 18, even if they do or don't have that, you know, that capacity um, to do to, to sort of advocate for themselves. And so, um, there are some challenges in that sense, um, and, and certainly related to housing. I would say that housing is one of the, the biggest challenges that faced by uh, people who have FASD, because housing, we tend to, you know, the need for supportive housing is there, uh, structured and, and supportive in different ways for different people, um, and yet, you know, it continues to be something that's not readily available unless there's some other qualifier uh, that the person has. So, for example, they might have a co-occurring mental illness that qualifies them for housing under the mental illness sort of um, mandate and umbrella, or they might, if they're justice involved, they might qualify for housing regarding that. Um, and so those are great that those are available, but for people who are doing relatively well and we want to be able to continue for them to do relatively well, there's certainly a gap in supportive services that are available. Um, is it recognized um, as a disability? Yeah, it is. So it's recognized as a disability, um, you know, both in the, the federal government, uh, individuals with FASD can qualify for the, the disability benefit. Um, and also within our education system um, in Newfoundland and Labrador, FASD is uh, a recognized diagnosis that gets a person, you know, access to accommodations and individual uh, individualized education plans. Uh, so, so it's there in some senses, but um, the trouble is that FASD is not recognized as a mental. Um, condition or mental illness, which isn't a trouble in itself. But so for, for housing and supports that are offered to people with mental illness, FASD wouldn't follow fall underneath that category necessarily. And so then we also see there's this stream of services and supports that are developed primarily for people who have autism spectrum disorder, which is fantastic as well. But then when something's so diagnostically you know, specific, um, 
we also end up with a gap where, okay, well, what if somebody has FASD, which may need very similar supports to somebody who has autism spectrum disorder in adulthood, um, but not exactly there, so they wouldn't necessarily qualify under that umbrella as well. So uh, certainly it can it can be challenging on, on multiple fronts. That seems like a fairly significant gap. Um, this is Awareness Month. I, I suppose the awareness is not just a, uh, about the, um, the spectrum disorder or uh, about, uh, you know, how to prevent it or whatever the case may be. It's also about, I, I would imagine, uh, governments and decision makers having a better understanding of it. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, we've seen really great progress within Newfoundland and Labrador in the past number of years. Um, FASCNL formed 10 years ago, um, but in, in recent years, we've grown significantly and um, have had really wonderful support from the Department of Community or Health and Community Services. Um, and, and recently, with the release of the, uh, the Provincial Alcohol Action Plan, we see that um, FASD is named as uh, an alcohol-related harm. And also named as a sort of a, a prior, priority action area uh, over the next five years in the province, and so it's it's really great to sort of start to see the the, the wheel turning um, on that front as well regarding uh, you know policymakers and and provincial government. September is FASD Awareness Month. Our guest today is the executive director of FASDNL, Catherine Dunbar Windsor. We'll be back right after this. Got plans for midnight? Bring your VOCM along with the best soundtrack for every night, anywhere. The VOCM All Night Show, midnight on your VOCM. Our guest today is Catherine Dunbar-Windsor. She's the executive director of FASDNL, and September is FASD Awareness Month. And for those of you who don't know, uh, FASD is Fetal Alcohol Spectrum Disorder. Um, Catherine, how did you become involved with FASDNL? Yeah, I first became involved back in uh, 20, 2014, I believe it was, uh, first volunteering and then um, becoming their first staff person um, for FASDNL. At the same time, I was um, finishing up an undergraduate degree at Memorial and then beginning um, a master's degree in sociology. And I made FASD the focus of my, my master's research and then in my doctoral um, research as well. Um, and so for me, it's been sort of this um, parallel learning process, um, both from a community perspective and also a research perspective, um, specifically focusing on, on Newfoundland and Labrador and then Atlantic Canada more broadly. Has enough research been done on, um, on the disorder? Well, FASD has sort of been named in the, you know, became known in the academic literature and, and, and medical literature in, in the 1970s. And, and really, we saw a growth in um, FASD research in the 1990s in Canada. Uh, you know, and certainly now we see much more research emerging. Um, however, it is an area where, because it is so complex um, in terms of how FASD occurs and how it impacts people and the social elements and, and, and medical and health elements as well, um, that there's so many areas to research. And so there's certainly a need for more. Uh, we have begun to um, undertake research within FASDNL um, as a project partner in the first sort of um, research project focusing on Atlantic Canada in particular. And it's a um, comprehensive community needs assessment um, looking at, you know, the main sort of social, familial, educational, health and legal needs that are associated with FASD. 
And we're trying to do this in, in three main phases. So we have surveys uh, that are available online for, for community members, for health and justice professionals, educators, policymakers, and people with lived experience of different types. We also have focus groups and one-on-one interviews um, with people who are interested in participating in that way, and then also an an assessment of existing policies and practices related to FASD within the four Atlantic provinces. And so this is going to be the first sort of, you know, baseline data available on FASD in Atlantic Canada, and uh, and we really look forward to sharing um, the the research findings with with folks. But um, they can find more information on our website. It's fasdnl.ca/research if they're interested in participating. And is this uh, sort of hand in hand with the online survey that you have? Yes, it is. Yeah, so the online survey is part of the sort of multi-stage, um, you know, rollout of the of the research that will be ongoing uh, over the next months and and potentially a couple of years in Atlantic Canada. Is there a specific goal, or is this a sort of a fact-finding mission, if you know what I mean? Well, certainly we want to be able to present findings to each provincial government and to be able to have sort of some data to look at Atlantic Canada as, a, as its own region, but given the, the sort of demographic similarities between provinces and also, um, you know, similar drinking cultures, alcohol drinking cultures as well. Um, so we think that there will be some unique elements there. Atlantic Canada, in some ways, has lagged behind Western, interior, Western and territorial counterparts in terms of... Um, of diagnostic work and and supports and strategies. But, you know, I think it's also important to recognize that the gaps exist across Canada and uh, and, and internationally as well. And, you know, FASD, say, compared to autism or other other conditions, is sort of a young diagnosis. It's a young condition in the sense that um, we're talking about diagnosis made in the past couple of decades. And so, you know, we, we've had a lot of, we have a lot of work to do, but we've come a long way as well. And uh, I think it's really important to highlight that. So this is Awareness Month and you have a number of events planned. Uh, tell us a little bit about MOVE for FASD. Yeah, so MOVE for FASD is something that we um, we sort of switched to when the pandemic occurred. We used to have uh, an in-person sort of focus on more in-person events. But what we've decided to do is um, a virtual um, Atlantic-wide event where folks can register online and they pay a $5 ticket price, which is um, a fundraiser for supporting all of our initiatives that, that support families um, in Atlantic Canada. And they can pick any type of physical movement that they wish, you know, um, walking, biking, running, swimming. Um, and once they've registered, their name is in, entered into a uh, draw. They can complete their physical activity at any point in the month of September. And at the end of September, we're we're going to be drawing for five um, uh, prepaid credit cards or $50 value each. And anybody who takes a photo and tags within it on our social media is also, they get a double entry. So they get another chance at, uh, at winning a gift card. So we're really just trying to focus on the ways that, um, you know, local community members and, and uh, groups and, and colleagues and friends and families can come together, uh, get outside, get moving and, um, you know, become a little bit more about aware about FASD in the process. One of my favorite Facebook pages is uh, NL Rock Art. Uh, I understand you have a rock art challenge as well? Yeah, we do. Um, So... (laughs) 
And uh, yeah, I mean, thank goodness we have such a plentiful, uh, you know, selection of beach rocks. Um, so we encourage people to to engage with the rock art and painting um, either FASD positive messages um, on the rocks or to paint the rocks as red sneakers, which is the sort of um, symbol for uh, Red Shoes Rock campaign, which is associated with FASD Awareness Month in, the, in September each year. Uh, and then to hide rocks, hide those rocks in their communities and and. Sometimes we encourage people to send us a little sneak peek of where they might have hidden some rocks. We um, we like to see the rocks popping up in the NL Rock Art Group for sure. And we've developed a guide um, so for centers and schools and different groups to be able to make rock art together as an activity. Uh, we've developed a digital guide um, to making rock art and some ideas for how to uh, decorate your rocks. And it's available in English and French on our website and on our social media pages. So you've been talking a bit, a bit about the research efforts and the like, but uh, what are you doing in terms of lobbying? Uh, do you have an open line of communication with government officials? Yeah, we do. Um, we do, and we're we're very grateful for that. We've been able to, um, you know, establish core funding in the past couple of years, which was really sort of the the biggest barrier to being able to, uh, or you know, not having that funding was the biggest barrier to to being able to grow as an organization. So, you know, now that we've um, been able to do that, and we've also um, uh, been awarded a a grant from the Public Health Agency of Canada uh, to conduct a three year project across the four Atlantic provinces. Um, about FASD prevention, awareness, and uh, um, education and, and capacity building. And so uh, that project launched last year in 2021, and it's ongoing until 2024. Um, and so that is another opportunity to be able to engage not only with the government of Newfoundland and Labrador, but on a national level, and then with each respective provincial um, government as well. Um, and so that project is really exciting and we're, we're very fortunate and grateful to have the support of both the public health agency and provincial government um, in supporting our work. Um, and so uh, I guess the other thing that we do during um, FASD Awareness Month is something we call putting FASD on the map. And uh, we ask municipalities, even organizations, uh, cities and provinces to issue a proclamation of FASD as um, as FASD Awareness Month. And so we've been able to, we've had Premier uh, Houston in Nova Scotia issue a proclamation. We have proclamations coming from um, other governments within um, municipalities, cities, uh, communities. Um, Nunatsiavut government has released a proclamation for their communities along the Labrador's north coast. Um, and so we're really excited for that and to, to see Confederation Building lit up red tomorrow uh, tomorrow evening, which is you know, International FASD Day. Um, and so all of these things, sort of big and small, um, just point to the uh, an increased awareness and, and the need for more, uh, to more understanding uh, around FASD for sure. And I understand you have a big in-person conference coming up. I want to talk to you a little bit about that and some other things when we come back after the break. My guest today on uh, on Target is FASD NL Executive Director Catherine Dunbar-Windsor. We'll be back right after this. Take a break. Join us weekdays from 1230 to 1 p.m. as we discuss anything and everything that's happening now. It's all on the table during your VOCM lunch break. This is FASD Awareness Month. Our guest today 
is the executive director of FASDNL, Catherine Dunbar-Windsor, and it's all about raising awareness. And uh, Catherine, now that the new school year has begun, I would imagine that this is a, a prime time uh, for teachers, guidance counselors, parents, uh, guardians to take note of any difficulties a student might be having. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and, and to really sort of um, think about the ways that we might support people that, um, you know, FASD could be sort of something that's impacting them um, and to support them in ways that are, you know, non-stigmatizing and, and, and recognizing individual strengths as well. Certainly. And uh, being aware of FASD and its effects, I would imagine, will help your uh, approach and make it all positive. Yeah, yeah. I mean, certainly, um, you know, the process of, of seeking uh, accommodations and, and sort of advocating uh, for for people who have FASD within the school system can can be a challenge. And and uh, you know, having educators and uh, you know teachers and so on uh, aware and open to to learning about FASD can make a world of difference for for students in their classrooms. So you have a big in-person conference coming up. I understand this is the first one in 10 years? Yeah, that's it. So um, we originally held a conference in St. John's in, in 2013, and, and our next conference is going to be in May uh, of 2023 in St. John's. And uh, we're really looking at the theme of the conference is reducing harms in Atlantic communities, um, really looking at health equity, uh, fetal alcohol spectrum disorder, obviously, and trauma. And we really want to help, uh, you know, bring together uh, service providers, uh, practitioners, and um researchers to understand um, FASD and sort of the complexity of addressing uh, FASD as a social and public health issue um, by understanding things like harm reduction and uh, sexual health and social determinants of health, so understanding housing and poverty and all of these different elements that impact people's health and connect with FASD, either because people with FASD might experience those things or because under those conditions, FASD can occur. Um, and so we're really um, looking to highlight Atlantic um, expertise and Atlantic knowledge and, um, and, and to bring folks together. And of course, um, our fundraiser, Move for FASD, this month, all funds raised support Atlantic uh, families uh, impacted by FASD. And so we'll be looking to help support bring families, uh, bringing families to the conference uh, and to cover some of the, the costs associated uh, because we really want this to be an accessible, um, an accessible event for folks. Uh, can the effects of FASD be intergenerational? Not in a direct sense. So if a person has FASD, there's no way for their child to have FASD unless that person consumes alcohol during pregnancy. Um, we know that people who have FASD can sometimes struggle with the complex nature of parenting, um, but that doesn't mean that it's not something that they can't do well with, with supports. Um, but no, FASD is not is not genetic in that sense, and, and it's not something that's you know you can you cannot inherit it essentially. But as you say, the effects can be, I suppose, depending on uh, how it impacts your family life, uh, be felt down the down the road. 
Of course. And, and, and so some of the things that people with FASD experience at a higher, uh, higher rate than, than people without FASD. So, for example, uh, growing up in, in foster care or being justice involved, um, having precarious housing, precarious employment, all of those things would then impact, you know, potential children um, in the way that they would for everybody, though. So, um, but again, we, we're trying to encourage, you know, thinking about FASD in these more complex terms. It's not just a, a diagnosis that occurs to somebody as a child and then, and then that's it. You know, we can kind of forget about it when they're adult. It really is something that impacts people across the lifespan. And our relationship with alcohol as a substance is very much what underpins how FASD occurs uh, in our society. So really, we're looking at uh, the need for some cultural shifts here. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of subtle ways that people can contribute to that. I mean, not asking people to why they're not drinking is, I think, a very bare minimum sort of uh, thing that we can all do. Offering non-alcoholic beverages at social gatherings um, and really sort of examining the relationship that we have with alcohol, you know, because alcohol accompanies sort of the highs and the lows of our life and maybe maybe even the middle parts that are a little bit monotonous. But, you know, we see there's been a, in recent uh, years a pinking, as we call it, of the alcohol industry, uh, a lot of marketing of alcohol products being targeted uh, towards women, Um in how they're presented. Uh, we've seen the emergence of this sort of like wine mom narrative of, uh, you know, uh, it's okay for us to make mistakes and, and as women to, to have wine because that's how we cope with mo- being a mom. Um, and so we, and we also have new research now uh, and the development of Canada's new uh, low risk alcohol guidelines that show that we have an increased rate of cancer, both uh, men and women. Um, with increased alcohol consumption. And so uh, there's a whole number of reasons of why uh, we sort of maybe need to shift our, our, our understanding and our relationship that we have with alcohol within society. Uh, and there's been a report out, there was a report out uh, this past year, as a matter of fact, of the, uh, the health impacts uh, of alcohol. And I suppose this is all part and parcel of that. Yeah, absolutely. So understanding alcohol as a carcinogen, as a cancer-causing agent, for sure is something that we, you know, we do try to also underline to people. Um, and that may not be completely well known. I do sort of, to myself, wonder what our relationship with alcohol will be as societies, uh, you know, 20, 30 years from now. Will it be sort of like how we talk about, you know, people used to smoke on airplanes and people used to smoke in classrooms at Memorial, you know, uh, in universities around and in, in restaurants. And, and for those of us, you know, that were alive in the 80s and 90s, we recall all of that. And it is going to be interesting, I think, to see if we see a similar sort of shift about alcohol um, and our understanding of it as something that can have uh, some serious health implications for us in a, in a number of different ways. They used to smoke in newsrooms, too. (laughs) That was a big eye-opener for me when I started in this business as well. Wow, is it always blue in here? (laughs) But you're right. Um, Our attitudes towards smoking have changed so dramatically now. Now it would be shocking for anyone to go into a a, a building or a a room or a workplace and see the air blue with smoke. Uh, So maybe that cultural shift uh, has yet to come when it comes to alcohol use. Yeah, perhaps. And, uh, you know, we all certainly play a part in, in 
you know, understanding alcohol, understanding its harms, um, understanding its impacts, and uh, and supporting people for whatever reason that they may choose to not drink very much, not drink very often, or not drink at all. Catherine Dunbar-Windsor, Executive Director of FASDNL. It's been a pleasure this afternoon, an eye-opener. If anyone wants more information, they go to your website? Yes, absolutely. It's FASDNL.ca, and uh, we're also on Facebook, Instagram, and uh, Twitter. Um, Our handle is at FASDNL. Really appreciate your time this afternoon. Thank you very much. Thank you. And we'll be back tomorrow to talk about airplanes and diving. How did the two correlate? Well, they came together in Gander recently. We'll tell you all about that uh, tomorrow. Stay tuned for that. Thanks for listening, everyone.